Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us for worship today at the Vista. As you can see, we are starting a new series. Over the course of the next month, we get to talk about sex and sexuality. You excited? Some of you are, I guess. I don't know. Um, I want to mention a couple things as we get started into the series. Um, I want to talk about why we're doing a series like this to begin with, and then just uh, a couple things that I want you to be aware of and know about. Austin and I are going to tag team the series. Um, I'm uh, starting it out this morning, um, and then Austin's going to preach the next two, and then I'll do the last one uh, in, the, in the series. And then on the Sunday following Thanksgiving, we're going to cap it off with a Q&A. Um, we realize that this is such an important topic and a really big topic, and there's a lot of different uh, topics to be discussed within it. And so we, wanna, we wanted to end it with a Q&A uh, time on, on that Sunday. Austin and I will be up here, and we're going to let you submit questions through the, throughout the series. You can go to our website and see the link where you can do that. Um, and then we're going to take those that are um, most broadly a course for everyone and try to, try to answer those questions at the end of the series. Also, uh, I wanted to let you know we're going to provide a resource page for you. Uh, again, on our website, there'll be a link to that. Um, what we don't want to do is simply say, okay, here's what the Bible says. Now, good luck with that, right? Like, we want to give you some tangible stuff. We want to give you some resources, some books, some websites, some things that you can go to um, to help you in that journey um, in regards to sexual sin, sexual temptation, and some of that. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, wanted to make sure you were aware of that um, and then why we're doing the series, you know, some people might say, why are we bothering to talk about this from the stage on a Sunday? Um, I mean, sure, it's important, but isn't this something you can talk to people in their private lives about? I mean, isn't this something you can, you know, put out as a resource for those that want it? Do we really need to take Sundays um, and talk about something that's so private like sex? And the answer is yes, we absolutely do. Um, you don't have to look far in our culture to see that we are a culture that is consumed with sex and with sexuality. Um, it is a really, really big deal. We are a church, have always been a church that ministers primarily to a lot of young people, uh, a lot of millennials, a lot of that Gen Z, um, and we love that. We love to have young people, but what you'll notice uh, across our nation, statistics tell us that those are the fastest generations that are walking away from the church. They're literally leaving the church in droves, and when they do the research and ask why are so many young people leaving the church, the number one thing they say is they don't feel like the church is relevant to them. They look at the church and think the church is this institution from a bygone era with a bunch of rules and laws, but they're not really, uh, they don't really address what I'm dealing with in my life. And so as a result of that, lots of young people are leaving the church. And so we as a church have said, no, we love young people. We want to be a church that ministers to young people. And if we're going to be a church that ministers to young people, we need to address the subjects and the things that young people are dealing with. And so in our culture, that is sex and sexuality. It's a huge, huge deal. And if the church isn't going to talk about it, then everything we're going to learn about it is going to come from culture, which of course is not always the right message. It's not the right message. And so some people have this idea, again, our culture sort of screams, sex is this physical thing, it, it's not that meaningful, you can have sex with whoever, whenever you want, as long as it's two consent, consenting adults, do what feels good, it's really not a problem. That's kind of the pervasive message from culture. Then we have some in the church that maybe grew up like I did. I grew up in a very conservative, I would say traditional, maybe even, you might even use the word fundamentalist Christian background, and the message I always heard about sex was, 
Sex is bad. Sex is dirty. Don't do it. Stay away from it. It's awful. It's bad. So save it for marriage, right? Which just seemed to be a really confusing message, right? (laughs) Sex is terrible. Sex is awful. So save it for the one you love. It's like, what? That doesn't seem right either. So what we want to be concerned with is not what culture says and not even what your parents and grandparents had to say about it, but what does the Bible tell us about it? Specifically, what does God say about sex? What does God say about sex? So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to jump in. We've got a lot to cover this morning in a very brief time. I'm going to start out in Genesis chapter 1, the book of beginnings. And so Genesis... So close, but somehow I missed it. If that's you, well, hear me out. Maybe it's time that you let somebody besides you structure your time. Maybe it's time that you submitted your time to the deep and ancient wisdom of the church. And that's what we want to challenge you to do in this Advent season. Don't get so caught up in office parties and friends and gift exchanges and yada, yada, yada that you miss Advent that you miss preparing your heart for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And you being here this morning and celebrating Advent with us is a really important step in that direction. All right, so let's keep it up. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Uh, always encourage you to bring your Bible with you. If you can, we'll also have it on the screen. And then we have some hard copies of the Bible in front of the sound booth that you're also welcome to grab and take and keep. So Matthew 3. 1 through 12, a story about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now in those days, John the Baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the heavens, is at hand. For this is the one who is referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, he quotes Isaiah 40 here, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make way, make ready the way of the Lord, and you better make his path straight. Now John himself, he had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, you better bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't suppose that you can just say to yourself, Well, we have Abraham for our father. For I'm telling you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. So John the Baptist is uh, the key figure in our Advent text for today. And he always plays a very important role during the season of Advent. Because in the biblical story, John the Baptist is the one who is sent by God to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And he's just a ridiculous figure, isn't he? Here's a 15th century sketching of him. He just killed an animal, you know, cut it in half, put it over his head. He walks around eating bugs, locusts, etc. As the Gospel of Matthew tells it, he just... He just like wanders out into the wilderness one day, man. 
just goes out into the wilderness and he starts telling everybody that they better straighten up because God was coming for a judgment soon and it wasn't going to be pretty. And so here's this wild man out in the wilderness, okay, eating bugs, preaching hellfire and brimstone. And for whatever reason, these huge crowds of people are going out to see him and hear his grumpy, judgmental message. And I don't know about you, but like if somebody told me, hey, Austin, there's this, this really weird, grumpy man out in Miller Springs Park who eats bugs and, and yells at people and tells them to confess their sins. I don't think I'd go out for a visit. Would you? I don't think you would. We wouldn't like load the Fisher family up in the van, you know, and say, hey, we're going to go out to Miller Springs to get yelled at by this really weird man who eats bugs. My boys would think that part was cool. And so what are we missing here, you know? Like why would these people, these huge crowds of people, go out into the wilderness to get yelled at by this mean, mean man who wants to make them confess their sins and then take a bath in a dirty river. Well, what you and I tend to miss is that John the Baptist's seemingly bizarre actions are not the uh, you know, uh, misguided eccentricities of some sort of lunatic madman, but rather they are the very calculated deeds of one of Israel's true prophets. John goes out to the wilderness... And he eats bugs and he preaches judgment and repentance because he is fulfilling a prophecy that is found in the very last words of the Old Testament, the very last paragraph of the Old Testament. Okay, this is Malachi 4, starting in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet for the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. All right, Malachi 4, 1 through 6. And after reading Malachi, we can now understand at least a little bit that what we tend to miss uh, and what the first century people here in the text would not have missed is that John the Baptist is clearly meant to be some kind of second coming of Elijah. One of Israel's greatest prophets, his story is told in First and Second Kings. And according to legend, uh, Elijah didn't die, but he was actually taken up in a whirlwind. Right, in Second Kings 1. And also according to legend, Elijah would one day return and his return would mark that the great and terrible day of the Lord was upon us. That God was coming for a visit, a great and terrible visit, as Malachi says it. And so huge crowds of people are going out to John to confess their sins and be baptized because they know that the prophecies are coming true and God is returning to Israel for a visit. And John gladly baptizes almost everybody who comes out to him. And I say almost everybody because there are these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two dominant religious groups in that time. And John's not really very happy about baptizing them. We don't know if he ends up doing it or not, but we know he's not happy about it. And you just really can't make this up, okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're like a really big deal. These are important people in the community. They have traveled out to the wilderness to let mean, grumpy John yell at them, tell them to confess their sins. They want to do that. They want to be baptized. And John's response to all this is to go, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can baptize you. They're like, what? Are you, do you know who we are? We walked all the way out in the wilderness to let you yell at us, man. Like, what do you mean you're not going to baptize us? Why would you not baptize us? And he's like, well, let me think of how I could put this uh, politely. I, I'm not sure about baptizing you because you're, uh, you're a brood of vipers. You're, you're slimy, duplicitous snakes. 
that's why I don't know if I can baptize you. And can you imagine this? Can you imagine like coming to see me, not even out in the wilderness, right, but just up here in my office, you know, Austin, I would love to be baptized. You know, here's my story. I think it'd be great. I want to be baptized. And I go, yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> why would you not baptize me, Austin? Well, because you're a snake. <laughs> and I look forward to your, you know, one-star review on Facebook, but the answer is still no. Um, John is just this ruthless, ruthless guy. And yet, if we can read between the lines a little bit here, we can see that John's ruthlessness, and he is one ruthless dude, is motivated by a very deep and severe kindness. Right? Let's try to flesh this out a little bit. So my youngest son, Davis, he's, he's almost three at this point. In a couple of weeks, he'll be three. And he has developed this like uncanny ability to avoid discipline. It's, it's like it's a spiritual gift that the Lord gave him. I'm not kidding. And I'll do my best to, to explain it because it's kind of tricky. Um, I'll see him do something wrong, and so I will go to reprimand him, correct his behavior. Um, and instead of getting mad or sad, which is what most kids do when you reprimand them, it's what my oldest son does. Instead of getting mad or sad, Davis just immediately apologizes and flashes you the biggest smile you have ever seen. Right? And so the first few times he did this, we were like, oh, well, that was easy, <laughs> like, Good talk, buddy. Uh, what, what's all this parenting stuff about? We apparently have raised the most repentant child in the history of the world, and we're the best parents in the history of the world. We'll write a book about it, Disciplining Kid the Fisher Way. Uh, and so we thought it would be this fantastic thing. But what we've come to realize is that Davis has figured out that when he's being reprimanded, if he will just immediately roll over and apologize and smile, he will then be you know, released back out into the wild so he can continue his hell-raising ways. Um, for example... He's recently developed a bit of a potty mouth from his mother, no doubt. Um, wasn't me. And when he gets mad at his older brother, uh, his phrase of choice at this point is to call him um, a poo-poo butt. Yeah, I guess it could be worse. Uh, you can tell it's his mother. <laughs> so the other day I'm in the kitchen and the boys are in the living room and they're fighting over a toy as is pretty par for the course in our house. And I hear Davis say, in one uninterrupted breath to his older brother Wyatt, you're a poo-poo butt, I'm sorry. <laughs> there, was no, there was no comma, there was no semicolon, there was not an M dash, there was not a colon, you're a poo-poo butt, I'm sorry. It was like one uninterrupted phrase. It was like he thought he could say whatever he wanted in the first half of the sentence, so long as the second half of the sentence was, I'm sorry. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, it absolutely does remind me of Ricky Bobby. You know what I'm saying? You know <laughs> 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 oh, I said it with all due respect. That, no, that doesn't mean you get to say what you want to say. It sure as heck does. No, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> it's, so, it's always good to work Ricky into a sermon when you can. Um... And so what I had to teach my son in that moment. Hope in Christ, the hope of the resurrection, and then be prepared to share that hope with the people that God places around you. There's a lot of different ways to respond in crisis and uncertainty. What should the Christian's response be? I feel like that God just sort of reminded me that my response should be to trust God. Don't fear find opportunity, and to share hope. And it's my hope, my prayer, 
that as the church during this season that we would be able to do that, that that would be our response as well. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for our hope that is found in you. Lord, I know that there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of concern. There's probably a lot of fear among a lot of people. But God, I pray that you would help us to trust you. God, help us to trust you. Help us to, to, to know that you are faithful, that you are sovereign, and that you are good. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find opportunities to serve and to love the people around us because that is the way of Jesus. That is what you've called us to. You've called us to be light in a dark world. So God, I pray that you would give us opportunity to be that. God, help us to share the hope that is inside of us and to live out that hope around our neighbors, our friends, our families. Help us, God, in the midst of these times to point people to you. We pray that you would give us grace for that, strength for that, and courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us this morning. I'll give you a few statistics to kind of get started in this. First of all, uh, in, our, in the world, uh, over $90 billion a year is spent on pornography worldwide. $90 billion. In our country alone, um, over $14 billion is spent on uh, pornography. And just to put that in some context for you, um, and these numbers are actually several years old. It's probably even more than that today. Um, in, our, in our country alone, over $14 billion, that is more than the revenue produced from the three major sports in America combined. More than football, basketball, and baseball. Pro football, pro, pro basketball, pro baseball combined. So I've heard people talk about sports and say how sports are, man, they're like a god in our culture. We almost worship sports and athletes. And you see these crazy lunatic fans that are just giving everything for their team. And I don't disagree with you. I'm a sports fan, and I can see that sometimes sports becomes a god. It's very easily, it very quickly and easily can do that. But here's what I would tell you. You know what's an even bigger god in our culture? Sex. Sex is an even bigger god in our culture. The amount of money that is spent on sex and pornography is staggering. Um, I'd also want to say as we start talking about this that this is not just a man's issue. Sometimes you start hearing about pornography and quickly it's like, this is for all the guys, right? And, but I would tell you the fastest growing consumers of pornography in our culture are women. Um, women are consuming more and more and more pornography. And I say that because it's really important. I talk about leaning in is that um, sometimes, again, we write this off as not, not your thing, but... Um, there have been, Austin and I have both had many conversations with couples where it's the wife that sometimes struggles. There's been a few uh, women that are bold enough to actually confess to, yeah, this is a struggle for me. And often they're reluctant to do so because there's the, the shame associated with it. Like, I'm not supposed to struggle with this. So I want to say that because if you're a woman in here that does struggle with that, I want you to know you're not alone in the struggle. There are, uh, there are women in our church that that is a struggle for them. And I don't want you to feel like you're like, on some island by yourself, that this is a, it's a real struggle for both men and for, and for women. And then the last thing I would tell you, it's actually a very, very sad statistic. And that is that almost 90% of children ages 8 to 16 years old have viewed internet pornography. 8 to 16. One leading out in the death of Stephen. You see, but... In Acts chapter 9, a few chapters later, Saul of Tarsus 
has this encounter with the risen Lord. Jesus appears to Saul and he changes his life. At Saul's conversion, um, we go on to see a man that is completely different. He changes his name to Paul. And then rather than being an opponent of Christianity, he is uh, one that is most responsible for the spread of Christianity. He was an opponent of the church, but then he goes on to be a planter of churches. He was an opponent of or a disbeliever of the resurrection, and he spends the rest of his life preaching about the truth of the resurrection. So Paul's claim here to the believers in Corinth is, guys, here's what's most important. You can disagree about a lot of stuff, but what's most important, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose, and then he appeared, and he appeared to friends, strangers, family, and even enemies. And then my last point is this. My last point, what I want to leave you with is that Jesus now rules and he reigns. Jesus rules and reigns. You, so, you see, Jesus, um, as we see him in the Gospels, Jesus is, is kind of this lowly, humble peasant from Galilee. He was, again, homeless. He didn't have a lot of money. He never traveled very far from his home. He calls this group of rather sort of ragtag disciples that were uh, not selected by the other rabbis of the day. He was, um, again, walked in a great deal of meekness. But you see, we don't serve and worship lowly peasant Jesus. We serve and worship a risen and exalted Jesus. Jesus is no longer in his incarnate state, lowly suffering servant. No, no, Jesus now has finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. He went to a cross and he gave up his life on the cross and then he ultimately went into the grave and he walked out of the grave conquering Satan's sin and death and now he is risen and exalted. Hebrews chapter 12 says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Revelation chapter four, we're given a glimpse into heaven. And it says that Jesus is there and gathered around all the angels, all the people, all the heavenly beings. And their attention and their focus is on risen and exalted Jesus. And they're singing and shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So I would remind you, church, that we don't serve lowly peasant incarnate Jesus. We serve risen and exalted King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus. And he's not oblivious to what's going on in our world and he's not oblivious to what's going on in your life. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is worthy of our love and our devotion. He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our lives. As I wrap it up, I want to remind you of the very first thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. In talking to these believers in Corinth, he says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. He, he says he wants you to receive this. You see, we don't just want you to hear some things about Jesus. We don't just want you to know some things about Jesus. We want you to receive the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus 